Our sermon this week is taken from Judges 5, verses 1 to 9. Let us read together. Um, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Josephine. You guys may be seated. First of all, let me congratulate you for being at church. You passed two great tests. Number one is the rain. You passed that, which is great. Okay, most people can easily, you know what, it's rain, I'm not going to go to church. But the second test that you passed is F1. Okay, please do not check your phone during the sermon. I know it's very tempting. Some of you are like, mmm, mmm. Resist. You will find out the result after the service. Or you can watch a replay after the service. So tonight, uh, my sermon is going to be the song of victory. So it's a continuation from last week's sermon. Now, human beings, we have timeless and universal fascination with superheroes, don't we? Now, I remember I grew up being fascinated by this one, okay? Most of you probably, not maybe, not most, some of you probably know this. Go, go, Power Rangers. Remember that? Right? I was obsessed with that to the point that I love it so much that I pretended I was sick on many Sunday morning so that I did not have to go to church and I can stay home watching Power Rangers. Okay, true story, true story, because it's always on Sunday morning. I don't know why. And somehow, somehow, Netflix find out my, about my fascination with Power Rangers, right? And that is why Netflix later this month will release what they call 30 years in the making, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, once and always reunion. Now, my first reaction when I saw the trailer was, 30 years in the making? Wow, I'm old. Okay, that's the first one. The second reaction was, I mean, this is ridiculous. Who would watch a bunch of overweight and wrinkled characters who suddenly become slim and fit when they put on the ranger suit. But you know what? Let me tell you a secret. Most of the guys in my generation will watch it anyway. You can easily tell. How do you know? Because in the next few weeks, you will start hearing us humming. Mm, 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 mm. Maybe not the dancing, yeah, maybe. But the hum, you will hear it. Because there's this fascination among all of us towards super superheroes. In fact, if you look at different cultures, you can find many different superheroes. For example, you find Gilgamesh, Achilles, Hercules, 
And let's not forget our very own superhero. You know who that is? Gatot Kacha. All right? You know who that is? Some of you are like, who's that? Gatot Kacha. You guys don't know Gatot Kacha? Oh my gosh. Oh my. You need to go back to Indonesia and learn your history, okay? We have a superhero. His name is Gatot Kacha. There's even a movie on Netflix about him, okay? So we love superheroes. And we love to be entertained by them. Here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible also has its hero and superhero. And we encounter some of them in the book of Judges. So in the book of Judges, last week in chapter 4, we encountered three different heroes, remember? Deborah the judge, Barak the soldier, and Jael the housewife. So last week, we looked at how each of them played part in the salvation of Israel. So if Judges chapter 4, when we look at it, it gives us the historical account of what happened. But Judges chapter 5, today is a bit different because Judges chapter 5 look at the same event from different perspective. So if Judges chapter 4 give us the historical account, Judges chapter 5 give us the theological interpretation. And the funny thing about it is it's written as a song. And to understand it properly, to understand the story properly, we need to read it, both chapter 4 and chapter 5. So, let's recap what happened last week, okay? Because I know some of you are not here. So, what happened last week, remember, the people of Israel sinned against God, and God sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And Jabin had a powerful commander by the name of Sisera, who commanded 900 chariots. And Israel was powerless before their might, and they cried out to God, and God listened to their cries. So God commanded Deborah to come to a man by the name of Barak and say, Barak, go and fight Sisera because God has given Sisera into your hand. But do you remember what Barak said? Barak replied, I'll go if you go. But if you don't go, I'm not going. And then Deborah said very well, said, all right, Barak, I will go with you. But remember the line that Deborah said? Deborah said, but Barak, you will not get the glory at the end of the battle. Okay, so apparently someone else will kill Sisera. It's not Barak. And apparently it's not Deborah as well, because there's another person by the name of Jael, who happened to be in the right place at the right time, and Sisera came into her tent, and then she gave him milk, and then she put him to sleep somehow, gave him blanket, and while he was sleeping, what she did? She got a tent pack and a hammer and crushed the temple. Kapow! And the twist in the story is that Jael was the one that got used to save the people. Not Deborah, not Barak, but Jael. And one of the lessons of the story that infuriated some of you, you know it, finish the sentence after me, don't be Jael, because if you're Jael, you will go to jail, okay? Some of you, I know that's all you remember from the sermon, that's okay, at least you remember something. But then, from what we see from what happened from that battle, Israel continued to have upper hand, and they defeated Jabin. That's chapter 4. So now in chapter 5, we enter the song of victory to celebrate God's salvation. Now, here's what's interesting about this song. In chapter 4, the Lord is only mentioned a few times. But in chapter 5, the Lord is everywhere, which teaches us one important lesson. See, God of the Bible, He's not sitting and watching passively as His story unfolds. No, no, no. He is the active mover of history. So in Judges chapter 5, 
what it does for us is help us to look beneath the surface of history and reveal that it's God's hand behind all things. And as a Christian, we must hold both chapter 4 and 5 together. We should think about our life not only historically, but also theologically. We should think about our life not thinking about what we did, but we also need to search out what God was doing. Why? Let's get this. Because when we understand the story of our life, it's not so much about us as about God. It keeps us from taking glory in our successes or despairing in our struggles. It gives us this equilibrium to handle whatever situation we might face in our life. Okay? So let's get into the sermon. I have three points. The warrior, the invitation, and the contrast. Let's get the first one. The warrior, first one to three. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Singing is a natural response to deliverance. Like imagine if you're the people of Israel. Imagine if you've been oppressed for 20 years and there was nothing you can do about it. You fought and you continued to lose because the enemy was too strong. But then one day something happened that changed everything. After 20 years of slavery, you're free. Now do you know what you do? You will start singing. You will want to sing. You will want to praise the one who freed you. Am I right? But what's interesting about this song is Deborah and Barak are the two persons who wrote this song. But this song is not about them. See, when they wrote this song, they decided they're not going to tell of their wonderful courage and accomplishment. Oh, no. They wrote the song to celebrate God. Because God is the one superhero of His people. He is the hero behind all heroes. He's the one in control of everything in the story. Let's remember what happened. God is the one who sold Israel into the hand of Jabin. He's the one who told Deborah to send his message to Barak. He's the one who went before Barak in battle. And he's the one who gave Sisera into the hand of Jael. He's behind everything. So Deborah, Barak, and Jael, they're simply the means by which God accomplished his salvation. And that is why when they wrote a song, they decided, okay, let's not about talk about us because this is God's salvation. It is the Lord that is praised throughout the song because were not for the Lord, there will have been no deliverance. And look at verse 4 to verse 11. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept by to by the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When you gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. 
Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpet, and you who walk by the way. To the son of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumph of the Lord, the righteous triumph of his villagers in Israel. Now, I want you to pay attention to the picture Deborah paints. When the God of Israel is on the move, this is what he says, the earth trembles, the heavens drop water, and the mountain quakes. And Deborah said, this is the same God who appeared in Sinai. Now, if you read the book of Exodus, you know, it was at Mount Sinai that God first revealed himself to the people of Israel after he delivered them from Egypt. It was at Mount Sinai where God first entered covenant with the people of Israel. And it was at Mount Sinai where Israel for the first time experienced the majestic, terrifying presence of God. I mean, it was so terrifying to the point that even Moses himself was fearful of his life. To the point that people of Israel said, no, 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 I, want, I don't want to go that near because I might be killed. It was that terrifying. And here's what Deborah is saying. The terrifying, majestic, powerful God, He's not stuck in Sinai. He's not stuck in Sinai. The God who came to Israel at Sinai come again to rescue His people in their present troubles. The God who delivered them at Red Sea can rescue them at River Kishon. The God who comes to Mount Sinai comes to Mount Tabor as well. In other words, get this. God is not some ancient history at Sinai. God is still marching again and again to rescue His people. And when He does, the universe shakes. So as Barak and his soldier marched down the mountain, Deborah says this, the one before whom the creation trembles is going to war. God, the warrior, fights for his people. But then look at the situation in Israel. Deborah said the highways were abandoned. The travelers were afraid to travel by the main roads because thieves and robbers were on the main highway. So people were afraid to go out of their house because it's dangerous. And the people of Israel were in a desperate situation. And Deborah tells us the reason for that is because they've been worshiping the wrong God. They no longer worship the true God. Which tells us one thing, that Israel is not deserving of God's help. And God allowed them to experience this desperate moment so that they might know the futility of idolatry. And isn't that how a lot of time God works in our life? Sometimes it is only when God's people see how hopeless they are that they can appreciate how mighty God is. And that's what Deborah and Barak in doing their song. Pay attention to it. Desperate people... And the warrior God are placed side by side so that desperate people might rest in the warrior God. Which tells us one important lesson from this text. Simply this, very simple lesson. Oftentimes, 
God allows desperate situations in our life to make us rely on God. And here's the shocking part. Every hardship, every struggle, every difficulty we experience in life all comes from the hand of God. Now, the mean by which they come might be our enemies, but it's planned by God. The mean by which they come might be our own foolishness, but it's purposed by God. God is the one who planned and purposed all the struggle that His people experience. So from this song, we know that God is absolutely in control no matter what. He's in charge. So God is not this passive observer who look at our situation and like He scratches His head in heaven. Oh my gosh, what happened to them? I didn't see that coming. I didn't realize, oh no, what am I going to do? No, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is in absolute control of every little details of our life. See, He does not show up on the scene trying to repair what is broken. Because God is not on the repair business. He's on discipline business. Everything that He allowed to happen in our life is planned and measured for our good. In other words, the desperate situation we face in our life right now is God's refusal, refusal to give up on us. But it's the good news. The good news is not only God is in control of our desperate situation, but the song tells us God also loves to save us in our desperate situation. Now, I love the way Dale Roth Davis put it. Now, you're going to hear me quote him a lot throughout the Sermon of Judges. Why? Because he wrote what I think one of the best commentaries I ever read in the whole Bible, especially in the book of Judges, the best. This is what he said. Surely, God's afflicted people shall derive great comfort from knowing that the God who came to Sinai is the God who comes repeatedly to His people in distress. And the next line is what gets me. Omnipotence delights in encourse. If you just think about that last sentence, omnipotence delights in encourse. It is massive. Let me put it in different words. God is not only our Father. He's also a warrior who delight in saving us again and again and again and again. And sometimes God allows us to experience those desperate moments so that we might know how strong He is. Because we, as human beings, we will never know how strong God is until we come to a point that realize that we are extremely weak. It is at the moment where we know that we are weak, we know how strong God is. And that is why sometimes in His kindness, God allows us to face situations that is beyond our strength. And if we are to win, God must win it for us and give His victory to us. So here's my question to you. What desperate situations are you facing right now? What impossible situation that you know that you're facing right now? Is it the salvation of the people you love? Is it the diagnosis of the doctor? Is it the addiction to sin? Is it the restoration of your family? Whatever desperate situation you're facing right now, I have good news for you. Hear me loud and clear. Omnipotence delights in encores, which means God loves to show you how strong He is 
by winning the battle on your behalf. It's not something exhausting for him. Winning the battle on your behalf is something that he delights in. He's a warrior who goes before us and wins the battle on our behalf. So God is always at work bringing his plan to fruition. That's the first one. But the second thing that we can see here, there's an invitation from this warrior guard for us to play part. Verse 11, see. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, let away your captive, O son of Abinor. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The prince, prince of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his hill. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searching of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their life to the dead. Naphtali too, on the, height, the heights of the field. Okay, now, let me explain to you what happened. Because it's written in metaphor. Some of you are like, I'm not understanding what's happening here. Let me explain. So the focus now, the focus of the song shift from God to God's people. And we see contrast between the tribe of Israel. The tribes who participated in Deborah and Barak invitation to fight receive a high commendation. While those who did not participate receive a rebuke. So, so we find that some of the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali participated in the battle and received honors. While Reuben, Gilead, Dan, and Asher stay at home and are rebuked. So there are two tribes here. There are two types of tribes. One who risked their life, and there are tribes who decided to play it safe. The question is, well, why did some of the tribe refuse to participate? Now, we are not told the exact reason for each tribe in the song. But Deborah says this, there were great searchings of heart among the clans of Reuben. And she repeated twice, which means it is important. So here's what happened. So it wasn't that the clan of Reuben ignored the invitation and said, like, you know what, let's not worry about it. That's not what happened. So what happened is the Reubenites, they discussed the matter thoroughly. They talked among themselves and they decided, hmm, it was not a good time to leave the ship. So they did the math and decided it was not worth the effort. They refused to sacrifice their individual interests and well-being for the sake of nation. With other words, their ship was more important than their brothers. And look at verse 23. Now, this is very strong. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, we do not sure, we're not sure where Meros is located, but it must have been very near to the battle scene. And it does not say 
that they did anything bad. It does not say they stay back, drank Heineken, smoked weed, and mocked Israel. It doesn't say that. What they did is simply nothing. They were not involved. So they refused to help God's people, and the angel of the Lord cursed them, which tells us something about saying no to God's invitation. Saying no to God's invitation to play is not a neutral ground. In the eyes of God, non-involvement in God's invitation is not acceptable. Doing nothing is not neutral. We are either in and blessed, or we are not in and cursed. And look at what happened in the battle, verse 19 to 22. It's amazing. The kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. And verse 20. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoof with the galloping, galloping of his states. Here's what happened in the story. So Deborah and Barak now make it clear. Because last week we learned about how God gave them the victory, right? But we're not told how God gave them the victory. And now in this song, Deborah make it very clear how God gave them the victory. Here's what happened. The king of Canaan fought, but they're not fighting against Deborah and Barak. Oh, no. Deborah says they're fighting against God who rules the stars. The stars are fighting. And not only the stars are fighting, but then these verses tell us how they won the battle. Here's how they won the battle. God poured out rain from the heaven, and it caused the river to flood. Now, see Sarah was a great commander. He would not have arranged his chariots had he known that it would flood. But here's what happened. So it might, the, water, the battle most likely happened during dry season, and Sisera never expected anything about you know, rain or flood or anything. But then God opened up the heaven. He sent a thunderstorm and caused the river Kishon to swell, overflow, and flood the area. And here's what happened when flood happened. Chariots became useless. And because of that, their advantage became disadvantage. And now, Barak, foot soldier, marched down from Mount Tabor and won the battle. And there is no doubt in people's mind whatsoever who won the battle. God won the war. See, don't miss the point here. See, God does not need the help of all the people of Israel. God will win no matter what. But He's inviting His people to participate in a battle he will win. And blessings are found in fighting for and with God, putting ourselves in His service no matter what. And curses are found in saying no to God's invitation and staying at home. Okay, you, you already see where I'm going with this. What's the lesson for us? There are three types of people. Those who make things happen. Those who watch things happen and those who have no idea what's happening. But there's only one type of Christian. Christian are those who participate in God's work. So here's the option. 
we are either participating in God's work and are blessed, or we are not participating and are cursed. There's no neutral ground. We are either in or we are not in. So the text is very clear. God does not need our help to accomplish His work. But God is inviting us to play our part in His work because God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. And I think the problem with some of us, I think if we're not careful, become too comfortable playing church while we are doing nothing. We're not participating in God's work. And listen, sitting on the sidelines not only robs us of joy, it puts us under a curse. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It requires involvement. So we can't say to ourselves, you know, as long as I'm not committing crimes, as long as I'm not committing sin, then I'm okay. No. Because to do nothing when God invites you to play is wickedness in God's sight. Okay, let me put it this way. Let me put it to you in one illustration. Last month, um, I saw an Instagram post of a mom who baked together with her three years old. Now, can we agree that baking with a three years old is actually a lot of work? It's not helping at all. Okay? So I messaged her and I asked, I asked, I asked her about experience, her experience. And she replied, oh my God. Okay? She had that weird voices. I'm not going to try to imitate it because you will definitely know who she is straight away. So this is what she said. OMG, it would have been so much faster and less messy if I were to do it myself. So I asked, then what did you do it? She said, I wanted to create memories with him, something he can hopefully remember when he's old and gray, that his parents are always available for him and present with him. And I could see he was learning and happy while doing it. And he enjoyed the fruit of his labor with pride. And I experienced joy from seeing how happy he was. Moms, isn't that true? I mean, you could have done better, faster job yourself, right? So instead of 60-minute work, now it becomes 120 minutes. And not only that, but your kid will also make a lot of mess. And guess who has to clean up? The mess. In the ideal world, you will say, my husband. <laughs> but we know we do not live in ideal world. We live in a sinful, broken world. So do you know who have to clean up the mess? You. <laughs> so we know, most likely, you are the one that have to do extra work, not your husband, not your kid. But here's what's amazing about it then. But your kid will not experience the joy of baking together unless you make space for it. And that is exactly the picture of what God is doing with us. He does not need us. He can do so much better, faster job without us. But He makes space for us to participate for our joy. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, have we said yes to God's invitation to play? Because if not, then we're missing out. Are we still sitting on the sideline doing nothing? But make no mistake, God does not need our help. He invites us to participate for our joy. And my third point, the contrast. Verse 24 to 27. 
most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of ten dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in noble spoil. She sent her hand to the tent pack and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. So violent. Verse 27. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Okay. Now, this part of the song is very interesting. So the last part of the song is actually a contrast between two women. A contrast between Jael and we will see the mother of Sisera. Okay, look at the, let's look at Jael first. So if Meros is cursed for their non-involvement, Jael is called the most blessed of women. Now, this is very interesting. Why? Because Jael is not even an Israelite. Jael is a Canaanite, a Gentile. But Deborah called the most blessed of women because she risked everything to kill God's enemy and help God's people. Now, can you see the contrast? The tribe of Israel and the city of Maris, who could be expected to participate, did not, while the one who was not expected to participate did. And she's called the most blessed of women. And what Deborah does in the song is this. She played the scene of Jael delivering that final blow in slow motion. See, Sarah asked for water. She gave him milk, covered him with blanket, grabbed a tent pack and a hammer, and crushed his temple and pierced his head. Like, so violent. But he doesn't finish there. Look at verse 27, okay? Verse 27. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. You know what Deborah is doing? Deborah not only played the scene in slow motion, she replayed the scene of Caesar's death repeatedly. Now remember, okay, remember, we must remember, this is a song to celebrate God's salvation for His people. So what Deborah does is she's delighting in and relishing that salvation. She's savoring God's salvation moment by moment. Let me put it this way. As most of you know, I'm a big fan of Manchester United. I watch every single game, doesn't matter what time. I identify with them so much to the point that their victory is my victory, their defeat is my defeat. And every time Manchester United win, I savor their victory. Here's what I do. I already watch the game live. I already know the score. But later on that day, let me tell you, I would still watch the highlight of the game. And not only that, throughout the day, I would open different soccer websites and read every article of the game and giggles on my own. <laughs> like, you know, being happy for myself. And then when I come to church, when I meet, when I meet my fellow United fan, the holy man of RSI, I will talk about the game with them. Why? What I'm doing is I'm savoring Manchester United victory. Because their victory is my victory. Okay, I realize I lost most of the ladies except Cindy. That's fine. 
Ladies, let me give you another example. As I grow old, I learned the art of enjoying food. Like, you know, when I was still teenagers, I proud myself in eating like a flash. I had seven bowls of rice in Chinese food, Chinese restaurant, in less than 10 minutes. Like, I devoured my food as fast as I could, right? That's what teenagers does. But now, it's different. For example, if I'm eating Japanese barbecue, I will not consume all those meat in 10 minutes, oh no. I will take that Wagyu sirloin, grill it medium rare, put a bit of salt with that hand, you know, like, and then I will look at the color. And once the color's ready, when I know it's ready, I will savor it in my mouth, slowly. I will take my time chewing that meat, and I will enjoy every last juice and fat in that sirloin instead of gobbling it down. I learned that food is not to be consumed, but savored. This is why I'm constantly on diet and never lose weight. Now, some of you are wondering right now, how does this relate to the sermon? Okay, here's how. That is how God's people view God's salvation. See, God's salvation is meant to be enjoyed, savored, and cherished, little by little, piece by piece, blow by blow. And this is not sadistic, my friend. This is rejoicing in God's salvation. And perhaps, perhaps, why some of us do not rejoice in God's salvation is because we do not realize how enslaved we are, how oppressed we are, and how free we can be because of God. God's victory over His enemies is only a thing that we read in the Bible. We have yet to experience how God saved us from our sin. But if you call yourself Christian, let me remind you of our story. You and I were dead because of sin. You and I were enslaved by our sinful desire. You and I were under God's wrath. You and I were powerless before our enemy. But then comes the two most powerful words in the Bible. But God. You and I were dead, but God. You and I were enslaved by sin, but God. You and I were under the wrath of God, but God. You were powerless before your enemy, but God. Rather than leaving us to our hopelessness, rather than leaving us to our destruction, God has another agenda. God, in His richness of mercy, came to our hopelessness and rescued us. So this is our story. The one before whom the creation trembles entered the creation and became one of us to set us free. This is God's salvation for you and me. We must learn to savor God's salvation. But look at the contrast with the mother of Sisera, verse 28 to 30. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeat of his chariot? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoils of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil. So this part of the song is called Holy Sarcasm. Okay, 
I'm not good at it. You might want to learn from one of us who's really good at it. He sits at the corner. So Deborah pictures Sisera's mother and princesses waiting for Sisera to return victorious. So this is a picture of a mother who anxiously waiting for the return of her son. So you can, we can imagine that, right? We can imagine her keep looking at the window. I keep wondering, you know, keep asking the question, why is my son not back yet? What's holding him back? Why haven't I heard anything from him and his army? Why the delay? And the princesses reassure her. Oh, you know how it is. It takes time to divide up the spoil. And they will most likely rape some girls while they are at it. I'm sure they will, be, will, they will bring some of this woman back to be your slave. Think about all the riches that you will have when they're back. That's what actually what happened. So this tells us that Sisera again and again raped women and made women sex slave. And Sisera's mother, when she heard the reply of the princesses, she probably replied, yeah, of course you're right. Okay, he will be back soon. But Sisera and his army never returned. The irony is, after making the life of any woman hellish nightmare, it is a woman who brings him down. The man who used woman as object is killed by a womanly object. And this, my friend, is God's justice. See, Sarah, he was not an innocent victim of the war. He's a wicked commander who got what he deserved. Perfect justice is being served. God punish the wicked. And look at the conclusion of the song, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. So Deborah sees what happened to Sisera and Jabin as a foretaste, a preview of what God will do to all his enemies. Because as God has caused Sisera and Jabin to perish, there will be a day that God will cause his enemies to perish. See, right now, we have yet to see God's perfect justice. Right now, we have yet to see all God's enemy perish. Not every story we know have a happy ending. Can we agree? Not every story we know have a good ending. Not every sexual predator nor sex trader is brought to justice. We often see the guilty go unpunished. But here's the promise. The day of perfect justice is coming. And one day, all people will stand before God and be held accountable for their action. And in this story, we get a small glimpse of how it's going to be at the end of the day. God will settle all scores. God's enemy will perish. But God's friend will be, the, will be like the rising of the sun in their strength. They will shine bright on the day of perfect justice. So Deborah here is contrasting God's enemy and God's friend. God's enemy will perish. God's friend will rest. Will rise, sorry. And Israel has rest for 40 years. This is Judges chapter 5. And this is the last Judges with a happy ending. So let's bring it together. See, remember, we must hold Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 together. 
See, Judges chapter 4 tells us that God wants to use us. See, God is not looking for a perfect person to use. God needs someone who's available, not someone who is able. See, what God is looking for is a housewife with a frying pan who says, Here I am, Lord, send me. So one of the themes of the book of Judges is that we can see is God can use anyone. In fact, He always uses imperfect people to accomplish His great work. But on the other hand, Judges chapter 5 tells us that God is the hero of the story. So yes, God will do great and mighty works through us who say yes to His invitation, but make no mistake, it is never about us. It's about God who is working in and through us. See, the story of Deborah, Barak, and Jael points to the God who works in and through Deborah, Barak, and Jael. It's a story about what, who God is and what God does for His people. And here's what we see in the story. God is the God of war who fight for His people. God is the God of the universe who moved the heaven and the earth to save His people. And God is the God of justice who delivers perfect justice for His people. And here's a question that we must answer. Simply this. Are we God's friend or God's enemy? See, God is the warrior who fights for his friend. But God is also the avenger who slays his enemies. And the truth is, all of us were once God's enemy, aren't we? We deserve nothing but God's wrath. So the question is, how can God's enemy become God's friend? The answer is, look at Jael. She was not part of God's covenant people. She was a Gentile, but then she risked everything to kill God's enemy and help God's people. And Deborah called her the most blessed of women. See, Jael is someone who put her faith in God and is blessed by God because of it. So how can enemies of God become a friends of God? Simple. Faith turns God's enemy into God's friend. But the question is, what happened to Giles' sin? What happened to our sin? Here's what happened. What happened to the God of perfect justice? Here's what happened. The cross happened. See, God did not make His enemy His friend at the cost of perfect justice. Oh, He cannot. God is a just God. That means every sin, every wrongdoing, every crime must be punished. He cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot. But the good news of the gospel is that God already judged sin at the cross. But instead of us on the cross, Jesus was put on the cross on our behalf. See, He embraced God's wrath towards sin. So that, remember last week that Jesus embraced God's nail and hammer. He took it on our behalf so that whoever put their faith in Jesus become a friend of God. But that's not the end of the story. That's only half the gospel. Because on the third day, Jesus resurrected. And the resurrection tells us that a day will come where God will demand perfect justice. And for those whose sin have not been punished in the death of Jesus, God will judge and punish them for their sin. Justice will be done. God is the God of grace, yes and amen, but He's also the God of justice. But for those of us who put our faith in Jesus today, we can sing the song 
of victory. How? Because the death and the resurrection of Jesus have guaranteed a song of victory. Because our victory is participation in Jesus' victory. So let me close with this. When we are in Jesus, this is our song. Jesus says to everyone who trusts him, my victory is your victory. When we are weak, Jesus says, my strength is your strength. When we are confused, Jesus says, my wisdom is your wisdom. When we are guilty, Jesus says, my righteousness is your righteousness. When we are ashamed, Jesus says, my honor is your honor. When we are hurt, Jesus say, my comfort is your comfort. When we are depressed, Jesus say, my hope is your hope. When we are wrong, Jesus say, my justice is your justice. And one day when we are faced with death, when all our strength, all our energy, and ultimately our breath fell us at the moment, Jesus will say, my life is your life. Christian, this is our song. Rejoice in Jesus' victory. Boast in this. Wake up every morning. Walk through every moment. Remembering that the reality that Jesus has won on our behalf. This is our song that we are continuing to sing every single day. That's why we say, to Him alone be the glory. This is our song of victory. Jesus has won on our behalf. Let's pray. As I wrestle with the text, as I meditate on the text the last couple of weeks, there's a word that continues to pop up in my heart and my mind that really speaks strongly to me, and that is this. Omnipotence, delight in anchors. Now, isn't it easy for us right now to give lip service to that? It's very easy for us to say right now, yes, I believe that God is good, He's able, He's strong, He's mighty. He can do whatever He wants. See, the thing with the church like ours is, it's very possible for us to know the right thing to give a lip service to the right truth, right doctrine, valid. But my question is not that. My question is, do you trust that? Do you believe that? Because that's what's happening in my heart. Because I, as I wrestle with this text, God's began to show me again and again that a lot of time, it's so easy for us to say, yes, God is able with our lip, and yet with our life, with our heart, we do not believe that. And as I wrestle with the text today, I feel like the Lord really put, in, put it in my heart. There's some of you, there's some of us in this place who are in that situation right now. That you know that you are in desperate situation. You know that you can't do it anymore, that you are at the last limit of your strength. 
and I want you to hear God's word for you. He's a God who delights in saving you. He's a God who delights in helping you. He's a God who delights in making the impossible possible. So before we end the service and we sing, the battle's been won. I feel like the Lord wants you to admit it before Him. I don't know what it is. I don't know what kind of situation that you're facing right now. I don't know what kind of impossibility that you are battling right now. But I want you to embrace that omnipotence, delight in encourage. He wants it. He likes it. He enjoys to make way where there's no way for you. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? So right now, before we end the service, if that's you, I just want you to put your hand high, high on the right, and yeah, and just say, Lord, I'm facing that kind of situation right now. I really need you. If that's you, you kind of have to just put your hand high. One, two, three. Just put your hands high and say, Lord, I am facing that kind of situation where I'm facing impossibility. And I really need you. And I'll speak to him. Say, Lord, I trust. I trust that you are a God who delights in saving me, in rescuing me, in making way where there is no way. And I want to rest my hope in you. I want to rest my joy, my strength in you. And I don't know how God will answer that prayer, my friend. But one thing that I do know, He's faithful to His Word. And my prayer is that in the next coming days and weeks, you will see how the hand of God begin to work in such a way, supernatural way in your life, to the point that you will say, to God alone be the glory. Believe it, receive it. He's a God who loves to fight for His people. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for revealing us to us again and again that you are a God, you are a warrior who loves to fight for us. And help us to trust you again and again. Help us delight, cherish, and savor your hand upon our life. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Lesson to our feet as we sing.